where one of the things I most enjoy about the superhero genre, I don't know if there's any superhero fans here this morning, are the origin stories. Right? How exactly did that person become that superhero? Or as it were, how did they become that villain in the story? Origin stories are interesting in and of themselves, often powerful and moving, but they also reveal a lot about the trajectory of the storyline and of the superhero or villain, why they are the way they are, what compels them, what motivates them in their journey. Well, followers of Jesus, it's true that all of us love origin stories, to at least to a degree, because anytime we share our story of how we came to faith in Jesus, we're sharing an origin story. How is it that we came to faith in our Lord, Jesus Christ? And when we share that origin story, it's powerful in and of itself to celebrate and think about the transforming grace of God in our lives at that moment in time, but it also makes sense of the trajectory of our lives, does it not? It helps others understand something of the story of our life, uh, why we are the way we are, why we make the choices we make and the decisions we make and are following Jesus like we are. Origin stories are powerful and helpful for many reasons. Well, this morning we're going to consider an origin story for one of the most powerful and important biblical people within redemptive history, the prophet Isaiah, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah is an amazing man. He is the author of some of the most important, powerful, and beautiful portions of the Bible. For decades and decades, Isaiah faithfully, albeit in the midst of very dark and difficult circumstances, Isaiah very faithfully served God as a prophet for decades and decades, Isaiah fought sin in his own life and in the lives of God's people collectively through his office as a prophet. As followers of Jesus, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, that should intrigue you because all of us desire to faithfully serve God and fight sin in our own lives. We want it to be said of us when we come to the end of our lives that that person for decades and decades faithfully followed Jesus and fought sin within their own lives and the lives of the community of faith they were a part of by God's grace. So how did Isaiah get his start and what compelled this man into decades of faithful service despite significant opposition in his life? Well, his origin story helps answer those questions. But as we look at this story, we recognize that as we peel back the unique historical circumstances, really the dramatic circumstances of his origin story, we realize that it really reveals truths that are true of us and our origin story. But even more significant, as we look at his origin, we recognize that it's not so much about Isaiah, but it's a story about Isaiah's encounter with the greatness and grace of the living holy yet gracious God. This is ultimately a story about God and his greatness and grace. 
And so if you wanted to describe this passage, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 8, but then touch on the last few verses as well. If you want to have a main point for the sermon, you could describe it in this way. God graciously humbles sinners so they can receive the grace of salvation and service. God graciously humbles sinners so they can receive the grace of salvation and service. And I'm going to use five words to kind of provide a framework for this, the flow of the text and the flow of Isaiah's origin story. And we'll get to those in a moment. But first, just a little bit about the context of Isaiah 6 here. First of all, what do we know about Isaiah? What well, it, it seems that Isaiah came from a well-to-do family. As you read his writings, it's the most, perhaps the most elevated writing in all of Scripture. He clearly was highly educated, which means he grew up in a well-to-do family. He would have grown up learning and studying the, the first five books of the Bible, the law, probably uh, memorizing large chunks, if not all of the law. He would have considered himself and understood himself to be part of the community of God's covenant people. And as he compared himself with the society around him, which was very dark and, and uh, not faithful to God in his covenant faithfulness, he would have probably viewed himself as in a pretty good position, comparatively speaking. He was okay as part of God's people, as someone who knew the law and was a pretty good person. And that was all about to change in his thinking. Now, there's some debate about what is going on here in Isaiah 6 and why it's placed here in the flow of the chapter, in chapter 6, rather than at the beginning of Isaiah. Now, without getting into all the different theories for sake of time, I'll just share my, my thoughts and opinions about it. I believe that this is a record of Isaiah's original conversion and call into prophetic ministry. I think it's placed here in chapter 6 rather than the beginning of Isaiah as sort of a literary device for his prophetic ministry because he begins Isaiah, if you read through verse chapters 1 through 5, with strong prophetic denunciation of God's people for their sin and rebellion, for their lack of faithfulness to God. But in chapter 6, it's almost as though early in the book he's pausing He's, he's pressing pause with his prophetic ministry to assure his original audience two important things. Number one, his authority as a prophet to speak to them is derived from his divine calling. God has called him to this ministry. And number two, he's not simply pointing the finger at them in condescending judgment, but rather beckoning them as one who identifies with them as a fellow sinner in desperate need to live in light of God's greatness and grace. He himself is with them someone who needs God's grace. So in other words, what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6 is what Judah needed and what we all need even today. To see God in his majestic holiness and to respond accordingly in our own heart and lives. I think that's what's happening here in Isaiah 6. And so with that said, that brings us to the first word that helps describe this origin story, and it's the word revelation. Revelation, verses 1 through 4. Now I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and as I do, just take it at face value 
because sometimes in all our explanation, we can lose some of the beauty and power of a passage, but then we'll go back through it and make some important comments about what is happening in the verses. So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. What a revelation of the greatness of God. Now, there's several things going on here that are really important. First of all, notice the beginning of verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. This is an incredibly significant historical statement. Uzziah began his reign as king of Judah when he was only 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years. And overall, Uzziah was a pretty good king. His reign as king was considered one of the golden eras of Israel or Judah's history. He was a strong king who led Israel to military victories over the Philistines and other neighboring nations. He was a visionary builder, planner, and general. Yet, if you know Uzziah's story at all, you know that his reign and life did not end well. It ended tragically. He entered the temple and presumed to offer incense to God himself, which was a task that had been strictly reserved for the priests who had been set apart for that consecrated service. God was not pleased with that. And so, in response, God struck Uzziah with leprosy, and so he lived out his days in isolation as a leper until his death in 740 B.C., And so now we know a historical date of Isaiah 6. Around 740 B.C., the beloved king is gone. Young Isaiah had reason to be discouraged and somewhat disillusioned at the death of Uzziah. This great king had passed away, but because of his sin, his life ended tragically. Where was God in all of this? Well, though Uzziah has died... And the nation's political future is uncertain, though Assyria, one of their neighboring countries and enemies, is gaining strength and threatening the national security of Judah. One of the things that God wants Isaiah to know is that he is very much alive and well, right where he always has been and always will be, ruling as the true king. And in an act of incredible grace, God reveals this to Isaiah. Now, there's three things that clearly he's making sure he wants to reveal to Isaiah here. But before I mention those, there's something really important to note. The king that's being described here is actually a pre-incarnate vision of none other than Jesus, the second person of the Trinity himself. We know this from John 12, verse 41, 
which is talking about Isaiah 6 in the context, and there, under the influence of the Spirit, John says, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. He's talking about. He's talking about this passage. So whether he saw a vision of the entire triune God and and the second person is there, or more likely this is that pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, as you read through this passage, though Isaiah wasn't fully aware of what he was seeing, from our perspective today, we can rejoice at the significance that this is none other than our Lord Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. In other words, before he came and took on flesh, in the glory and splendor of eternity past, this is a vision of Jesus, our King. So what does he want Isaiah to know as, as he reveals himself? Well, number one, as I already alluded to, he certainly wants Isaiah to know that he is alive and well despite what's happening in earthly, the, the earthly kingdoms. We as human beings can be so tied up with our earthly political leaders that we fret and fear and tie all our hopes up with them. And what Jesus is reminding us here is that, listen, regardless of what's happening politically with this mighty king who is now passed on, whoever's on the earthly throne, I am actually ruling. I am still alive and well. Though you may not see or understand all that I'm doing in my sovereign rule of all things, I'm on my throne, nothing is deterring me, and so live in light of that. And I think that's a good word for us today as Christians. Because a lot of times as you follow the Christian community on social media or you overhear, and I might get in trouble here, so don't turn me off if this bothers you, but as you hear people discussing current political circumstances from either perspective, sometimes we communicate that our hope is not in Jesus, the ruling king, but it is in earthly powers and politics and people. That is not the case. Regardless of who is in power, what party, what person, Jesus is ruling, and the way we live our lives and the way we talk ought to express confidence and hope in him regardless of those other circumstances. That's all I'll say. And so, God wants Isaiah to know that though Uzziah is dead, he is very much alive. Number two, clearly he wants Isaiah to be revealed to the fact that he's not just alive, but he is the exalted sovereign king. There's clearly an emphasis on his sovereign rule here. Notice again in verse 1, He saw the Lord, that's the word Adonai, which is the name for God that emphasizes his sovereign lordship and rulership. Adonai seated, occupying a high and lofty throne. Not just a throne, but a throne that is exalted above all other thrones. He's the sovereign, unrivaled ruler of the universe. Then notice... The end of verse 1, the hem or the train of his robe filled the temple. Kings of that time would wear robes with long trains representing their kingly majesty and unapproachableness. Much like a bride, right? They wear that long train often, and you don't go near that train, right? It's a sign of disrespect to approach it or to step on the train, like to someone who's making sure it doesn't get... Well, the kingly throne is sort of like that. It represents the unapproachable majesty of the king, and and you don't come near that hem or that throne. 
uh, excuse me, the, the hem of his garments. Well, God's majesty as king is so spectacular and great that just the hem of his robe filled the entire temple. That's how majestic and glorious this king is. He is so unapproachable in majesty that, that, that the hem is everywhere, indicating splendor and majesty. And then verse 2 references these angelic beings, seraphim. This is the only time in all of scripture that these beings are specifically mentioned by name. The word literally means burning ones or glowing ones. They're beings that were radiant in glory, radiating out fire almost or burning radiant glory. And these are above the throne of God. And what are they doing? They're attending to the king. And they're described as having six wings. Two of the wings, they're covering their eyes. Now think about that. These glowing creatures that are radiant in splendor in their own glory, and yet in the presence of the true king, the true king's glory is so radiant that they can't even look upon him. They cover their own eyes out of respect and reverence for the glory of the true majestic king. With two of their feet, excuse me, their wings, they cover their feet, which was a sign of humility because the feet aren't a very beautiful part of our body. And so in that culture, it was considered kind of disrespectful to have your feet uncovered in the presence of uh, nobility. And so they covered their feet out of a sign of humility and respect. And with two of their wings, they flew so that they could attend to the king and they could be ready to move and at his bidding if he called them to serve him. So as one commentator noted, the seraphim used four of their wings to express their humility and two of their wings to express their willingness and ability to serve God. And what are these angelic beings doing? They're declaring the incomparable glory of God the King. And this brings us to the second uh, or third thing really that Isaiah is, uh, one, God wants Isaiah to see here and that is the incomparable glory holiness and glory of God. Imagine this scene, one of these angelic seraphim crying out to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. Holy, a word that means someone or something that is completely distinct and set apart from something else. It's a word that describes God as completely incomparable to everything and anything else in the universe. There is nothing or no one like him. He is a cut above and completely distinct. So the seraphim are bellowing out in the presence of God over and over again that God is unlike anything Else. I heard a pastor say, when words fail us, when we realize the splendor and majesty of God is far beyond any word we can use to try to adore and worship him, God's given us this word to describe it, the word holy. Completely incomparable in all that he is. Now notice God's holiness is not just mentioned once or even twice, but three times. Some believe that's a reference to the triune nature of God, and it could be. But more likely, the primary emphasis is in the Hebrew language, intensity is communicated through repetition. 
So to say the Lord is holy is significant. To repeat it twice says even more. But the only time in Scripture that a word is repeated three times to say he is holy, holy, holy is to declare his holiness to the highest possible degree. God is the Holy One. You can't measure God on any of our charts at all. He's completely different and distinct. Now, when we talk about holiness, oftentimes the focus is on us and our efforts to be holy. But holiness does not begin with us. He is the Holy One. He defines holiness. He is distinct and other in all that he is. So the seraphim are proclaiming the holiness of God, the Lord of armies, which means he is sovereign over all armies in heaven and on earth. And then they say his glory fills the whole earth. The weight of his character, the radiant expression of his holiness, of everything that makes God unique, that's his glory. The beautiful display of God's character. We oftentimes are blinded to the glory of God, but the seraphim here certainly surrounding the throne of God could probably see the glory of God filling all of creation unlike any of us can see. Okay, so can you imagine one seraphim calling out to the other, holy, 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 and the other one responding, holy, 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 back and forth to one another in the presence of God. And as they did, Notice verse 4, the foundations of the very doorway of the temple were shaking at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke, which is a metaphor in scripture that points to the presence of God. Now I've been married for about 24 years and I can't tell you how many times over the course of those 24 years my wife has asked me in conversations where we're discussing things, our future decisions, events, and I'm kind of the hyper-analytical one who overthinks things and gets that analysis paralysis, as they call it. And I can't tell you how many times Virginia has asked me the question, hey, how big is your God? Because clearly in my analysis paralysis, I was forgetting about the grandeur of who our God is. And the answer to that question is our God is big and great and majestic beyond our ability to even understand. There's nothing going on with the greatness of God. And in those moments where my wife asked me that question, it wasn't about how big God was, it was about my view of God. My perspective of God, my faith in, in this God and my vision of this God. I think as Christians, our view of our, our grasp of the greatness and glory of God pales in comparison to how his true greatness. You could compare the greatness and holiness and majesty of God to every bit of water on planet Earth. Every ocean, every sea, every lake, every river, every stream, every creek, every, every well, every drop of water, just say, metaphorically represents the holiness of grandeur of God. It's like our grasp of his holiness is like a drop of water. Part of it because as humans, we can't grasp in our finite beings the fullness of God's glory. We're going to be spending eternity exploring and celebrating and learning more about the greatness of this one. Part of it is because if we're still 
if we're not yet a follower of Jesus and still in our natural sinful condition, our eyes are blinded to the glory and greatness of God. And part of it is because everything in our world is resisting our ability to have eyes that are opened and attuned to the greatness of God. We're so easily satisfied and distracted by lesser things that rob us of living life in light of the glory and majesty of God. Well, this is why Isaiah is having, experiencing this great revelation. And how does he respond? I mean, can you imagine? I don't think Isaiah got up this day expecting this. Can you imagine this moment? Well, where did it leave him? Well, that brings us to the second word, and it's the word confession. You could even say lamentation, but confession. Verse 5, the certain mark that a person's eyes have been opened to see God as he is, is a deep, profound, authentic, not feigned, not put on, but authentic spiritual humility. Isaiah's glimpse of God doesn't make him feel comfortable. It, makes him, it fills him with terror and fear as he sees God's holiness and sees himself rightly for the very first time, he says, woe is me. Woe is a wail of lamentation. It's an expression that cries out of distress. Essentially, all is lost. Grief has overtaken me because nothing can be done about this terrible circumstance. Isaiah, if you look back at chapter 5, and we won't look there, but you can look later, he's already applied this term to the nation Judah multiple times, and he's going to throughout his letter. It's often applied by prophets to people and nations as an expression of their own impending doom for their sin against God and their failure to repent. But now the prophet is turning that word in on himself and pronouncing lament and doom on himself. Why would he do that? Well, he's lamenting and confessing his own condition. He says, for I am ruined. I'm undone. I've come to the end of myself. It's over for me. I have seen the glory of God. And notice the middle of verse 5. Because... I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the armies. So, this word unclean is a really important word in the life of God's people. It's a, a word that was very important in their, their worship and their liturgy. The whole book of Leviticus, in one sense, is all about this concept of clean versus unclean. It's a technical term that actually refers to something or someone that is not fit for the presence of God. They're defiled, and therefore they're not fit to offer worship or be used in worship of God. And so what Isaiah has realized in a deep, profound sense is that in and of himself, because he is a sinner, his lips representing the whole of his being here, he is not fit for the presence of God. He's not fit to stand in God's presence, to offer worship to God. The very thing for which we as humans were created to flourish as humans in the presence of God, in right relationship with God, Isaiah, having seen God as he is, realizes, I'm not fit for God's presence. I am unclean. 
The prophet had been humbled. It's only as Isaiah sees God as he is that he finally sees himself as he is. A sinner unfit to stand in the presence of God. And by the way, he's not saying he's worthless because he is an image bearer of God who has an inherent dignity and value as one created in God's image, but he's seeing himself as an image bearer fallen, sinful, and therefore not fit to be in God's presence. He literally can't be in God's presence because he's unclean. Sin is dehumanizing. It robs us of what we were created and designed for as human beings. We were designed by God to, as I said a moment ago, flourish in relationship with him and right relationship with each other. Sin robs us of that. And we spe often spend our lives trying to find replacements and all the things that this world has to offer, not realizing that none of those will replace what we were designed for. Sin steals us of that. And it's only as our eyes are open to that that we can begin to experience renewal. Well, at this point in the story, we have a pretty bleak origin story, don't we? This great prophet who for decades faithfully served God, at this point, is not looking too good. His eyes have seen a glory beyond his ability to even grasp, and he's standing trembling in fear, realizing, it's over for me. I've seen the king, and I'm not worthy to be in the presence. And it's almost as though he expects one of those seraphim to be dispatched by God to completely cut him down. But an incredible, shocking turn of grace, the seraph is dispatched, but not in an act of judgment, but in an act of mercy and grace. See, God had made provision for his unholiness. And as Isaiah, and obviously an, an expression of heart repentance and faith, expresses his own sinfulness and unworthiness before God, God extends healing. And that brings us to the third word, which is cleansing. So we have revelation of God's majesty. We have confession of human sinfulness. And now we have cleansing. Cleansing. <clears throat> One of the seraphim flew to me. And again, can you imagine? I don't know what he was thinking when that thing was coming to him. <laughs> it's like, he was, I don't know what he might have been doing. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. The altar is the place where sacrifice is made for atonement. And the seraphim took, the seraph took a coal so hot that he had to use tongs to take it. And he brought that to Isaiah and he touched his mouth, that which representatively was what was unclean and made him unfit to be in God's presence. And he said to him, the, the, the seraph said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah's sin had to be removed, to be burned away, to be covered and expiated through atonement. So the fire of judgment was applied to his place of sin. 
Our ability to stand in God's presence doesn't start with what we do for God, but what God does for us. Extending to us the grace of atonement and mercy procured for us, accomplished for us on the altar of sacrifice. His iniquity, his sin, which is what made him unfit to be in God's presence, which makes all of us unfit to be in the presence of the one for whom we were designed and created. His iniquity was removed. His sin was atoned for, covered, so that now he is clean. Not because of his own goodness, but because of the grace of God that removed his sin and covered it so that now he was fit to stand in the presence of God. He was fit to be what he was created to be. Incredible. And what's amazing, while I don't think Isaiah understood at this point the ramifications of this, think about the, the beauty of this. I told you a few moments ago that this was a vision of the pre-incarnate king, right? John 12, 41. This was the glory of Jesus. So the pre-incarnate Jesus extends atoning grace to Isaiah here on the basis of his own future atoning work on the cross, the true altar. Because it was on that cross where Christ would make the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate provision of God for our unholiness so that we who are sinners by his own grace can experience full and forever forgiveness of sin and be declared righteous because our sins have been atoned for because of Jesus. and We can stand and be restored to the presence of God both now and forever. And this promise is extended to us today. If you're here this morning, and if you would recognize and see yourself as unclean before God, which means in light of the unimaginable holiness and majestic glory of the king of all, God, you're unfit to stand in his presence in and of yourself. If you will recognize that, and if you will in an expression of true heart repentance and confession, confess your sin and trust in God's provision of salvation through Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, what is he faithful and just to do? Forgive us our sins and, what's that word? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from all that keeps us from being able to stand in the presence of God. And that offer extends to you this morning, right now, if you would call upon God in faith. Well, here we have grace at the heart of the origin story. Grace is the turning point of this origin story. Isaiah saw God, convicted of his sin, and by grace was cleansed by it. And by the way, this is an incredible example of what Jesus said in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, when he's describing what entrance into the kingdom of heaven is like. 
It's a beautiful example of that. Matthew 5.3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God. They have, they're literally bankrupt spiritually and have nothing to offer God as, in terms of membership in the kingdom of heaven. But they are blessed because the kingdom of heaven actually belongs to them because they've seen their spiritual depravity and implication have called out in faith and repented from it. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4 says. They not only see their spiritual bankruptcy, but they mourn their spiritual bankruptcy before God. But they will be comforted. And what will comfort the person who's mourning over their spiritual sin? It's the assurance of cleansing of that sin, that their sins have been cleansed and forgiven. And what does that do? It produces within that person a posture of humility. Verse 5, blessed are the humble or meek, for they will inherit the earth. So Jesus says the, the mark of kingdom citizenship is poverty of spirit, mourning over that condition, and the posture of humility that springs out of it. So humility is not just the entry point into the kingdom. It's the virtue that marks the path of the kingdom. Which is why Peter says that we are to be clothed as God's people with humility. We ought to be known as a humble people who are humble before God and humble toward one another. Not a false humility, a humility that springs from a people who have seen the glory of God and have experienced the grace of God. So we have revelation, confession, cleansing. Number four, we have calling. Calling. Having experienced, seen God's greatness and experienced his grace, he is now ready and prepared to be consecrated to service to God. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send who will go for us? And notice there again, without going too deep here, most commentators see an implication of the Trinity there. He's using interchangeably the personal pronoun I with the plural pronoun us. Who should I send? Who will go for us? The triune God. Who can I send in service to the, my mission? God is ordained that he accomplishes much of his purposes in this world through people. Incredible, right? This glorious, majestic king beyond all uh, ability to even grasp desires to use people in his service. And he's asking, who will I send? Now Isaiah hears this, and he doesn't even know what the mission is. And it's going to be a hard one. But something had happened in his heart. He had seen the greatness of God and experienced the grace of this God. And so as he overhears this God saying, I need to commission and send someone on my behalf, it's like, it's the, the language in the Hebrew is kind of like the, the, the child in school. You know that child? who's always the one to say, oh, me, 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 right? I'll go first, or I'll answer the question. I have one of those in my family. Here I am, here I am, me, me. I've just seen who you are, and I've just experienced your condescending grace, making me fit to be in your presence. You need someone, I'll do it. <clears throat> And this is the work of grace that God does in all his people, implanting within them a heart 
to serve him in response to his greatness and grace. Not as a means of earning God's grace, but out of the overflow of the grace that we have experienced. This is so similar to Romans 12, 1 and 2, which you guys will cover uh, soon. Well, maybe not so soon. Where are you guys in Romans? 10? Okay, so it is close. 9 or 10, somewhere up there? Getting there? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, I urge you based on the mercy of God. Everything we've just covered in Romans, culminating Romans 11, 33 through 36, which talks about the glory of God. He says, I urge you based on that to present your lives a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable act of service in light of how great God is and how he has extended grace to you. Offer yourself up to to say, God, I'm yours. My body is yours. My life is yours. Whatever you say and want. And that's what Isaiah is doing. And that's what he calls us to be and do in his own life. Well, the last phrase or word, and I'll be honest with you, I just tacked to the sun this morning because I just, my spirit couldn't let me not cover this. Because in verse 8, Isaiah offers himself to be that person who goes on behalf of God. God's going to send him, but he doesn't even know what he's getting into, right? He might be thinking this is going to be a glorious role as an emissary of God, and he's going to have a life of respect, maybe. I mean, he knew the history of Israel probably good enough to know that that wasn't the case. But then God reveals the challenge the task was hard. He was going to be, it was a spiritual, spiritually dark season for God's people, and it was getting darker. And he was going to actually, his message was not going to be well received, but it was going to be a hardening message that confirmed the spiritual deafness and deadness of God's people. As you follow Isaiah's life, you see opposition and not much response to his prophetic word. But it didn't deter Isaiah. Isaiah, for decades, faithfully fulfilled this calling. But the fifth word is the word hope. Hope. Because even in the midst of the darkness that was to come, even in the midst of this really hard message of doom and despair and spiritual darkness over God's people because they just wouldn't repent, he says in verse 11, as God, after God reveals that it's going to be a hard season, he says in verse 11, until when, Lord? Like, how long is this darkness going to last? How long is this really hard mission going to be? And the Lord replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. I'm sure that made Isaiah feel a little better. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The stump being the, that part of the tree, you know, just a little bit left there in the ground. The tree has been felled, it's removed, and there's the remains. But there's a stump, and that's where we have hope. The last phrase of verse 6, the holy seed is the stump. The stump, the holy seed being a reference to the seed, the ultimate seed, the seed who would be the greater king of Israel, the Messiah, the one he is speaking with, who is on the throne. In the midst of darkness, there was hope because of the promise of the Messiah repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. Even in our darkest moments here on earth, even in a, 
as we live life in a season of despair and darkness, there is always hope because of God's provision of the King, Jesus. He is our hope, the Holy Seed. Now, in our last few minutes, let's kind of bring these things together and, and then make some final application. Isaiah's origin story, revelation, confession, cleansing, calling, and hope, isn't just a powerful story of how God transformed the, the direction of this young man's life, made him fit for his presence and his service, but it was also the fuel which empowered his entire life of ministry which empowered his faithfulness over decades and decades of service. Isaiah lived his entire life with these three things in view, the greatness of God, the grace of God, and the hope of the coming Messiah. As you read through the rest of the book, you, you see these themes coming up again and again. It was these themes that, that were constantly in view for Isaiah that enabled him and empowered him to be faithful in his service to God and to not turn away and to not give in to the sin of the culture around him. For example, when we think about hope, if you, in chapter 7, 14, he speaks of a virgin who will conceive and bear a son. In chapter 9, verse 6, the famous Christmas passage about the people walking in darkness will see a great light and a son will be born. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, the, the, the stump metaphor comes back. A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, etc. Talking about the coming future Messiah. And so, and that theme continues throughout his, his work. We don't have time this morning to look at them all, but this theme that the Messiah is coming, so as dark as it seems, as hard as it seems, as hopeless as it seems, the Messiah is coming. And from our perspective, the Messiah has come. He's done his work. He's now back exalted at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and he's coming again. He's still our hope. And so as a people of faith, who desire to live lives of faithfulness by God's grace, we should follow Isaiah's example and live life in view of the hope that is Jesus. Number two, we should live our lives in view of the greatness of God. Isaiah never got over the greatness of God. Decades later, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, Isaiah says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? asked the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls them all by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know, verse 28 of chapter 40? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. So decades later in his ministry, he's still living his life in view of the absolute greatness and majesty of God. It was ever before him. We could look at other passages, but for time's sake, we'll look at one more in a moment, but for time's sake, just note that. As we follow Jesus in this world, we must live our lives in view of the greatness of God. It must be ever before us. 
And the third thing that he lived life in light of was this grace of God that he experienced. It wasn't just something that he looked back on at his point of salvation and conversion and said, well, that was great back then. No, he always kept before him the grace of God. The cleansing he experienced in Isaiah 6, oh, for decades he continued to think about that, meditate upon that, get greater insight about that from the Spirit. So culminating in Isaiah 53, this incredible description of the, the fact that the king who was sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6 would one day leave that throne and come to earth as the suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Through his stripes, we are healed. The gospel of grace was ever in front of him. And so too for us, this gospel, this good news, which I know is set before you here week after week, needs to always be put before us. We need to live our lives in view of the gospel. If you turn to Isaiah 66 in closing, we'll see the very last chapter, the very last chapter, decades and decades after his ministry began, decades after his origin story, we see that here's Isaiah still living in view of the greatness and grace of God. Look at Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things and so they all came into being. Does it seem like at the end of his ministry, decades in, that he's still living life in view of the greatness of God? Yes. But look at the end of verse 2, the second half. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Though I am the exalted king and creator, I will dwell with the humble of spirit. I will condescend in grace. Does it seem like he's still living life in view of the grace of God? Yes. He never got over it, and neither must we. As we seek to be a faithful people to God, we must continue to live life by his grace, by his spirit's help in view of not our own ability to be holy in ourselves and to impress God and others through our own self-righteous works, but we need to live our lives fueled by the greatness of who he is and the greatness of his grace. Now, how do we do this? Well, I'm going to leave you with just a couple words of illustration. And I know I'm preaching long. I normally don't preach this long, but I checked out Rob's sermons online and said, <laughs> I'm good. I, 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 you know, I preach a lot of places, in, usually about foster care and adoption, and you know, oftentimes I'm, I'm given like, okay, 23 minutes, 32 minutes, 40, and uh, Brian said, and you guys are going to maybe get mad at Brian, but he said, hey, no limit, so... Now, just, just a couple closing illustration uh, points about application, because the question is, well, how do we do that practically? How do we live life with the greatness of God in front of us? Well, number one, let me just encourage you to pray. There's this category in Ephesians 1 about the Spirit of God opening the eyes of our hearts to see 
And we need to pray regularly for ourselves, for our family, and for one another within the church community. God, would you today open the eyes of our hearts so that we would live lives in view of your greatness and grace today. Help us to see it. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it by faith. We need to pray that the Spirit would do that. So regularly pray this for yourself. It would be a good morning prayer. God, today help me to see the greatness of your of your glory and of your grace. Help my family to see it and help my church community to see it. And it's also a good thing to pray for those in your life who you are praying would come to faith. Lord, open the eyes of their heart to see you for who you are because that's the starting point of coming to faith. And then secondly, go to where God's glory and grace are revealed. Right? I said earlier, everything in our life resists God's greatness us seeing it and relishing it and receiving it. And all the things we put before our eyes and in our minds so often are resisting us seeing the greatness and glory of God's grace. And, and so think about it. Obviously, we don't have time to go into detail, but creation reveals the glory of God. So don't just see the beauty of creation, but see behind it intentionally the beauty and glory of God in the created world. The word of God is the revelation. We're not going to see... God's glory revealed to us like Isaiah did, probably. Very few people in human history did. There's just a hand. It's not like that happened all the time in Bible times. Just a handful of people saw a little glimpse of God's glory. But we see it in Scripture. This is where it's revealed to us. So as we read God's word, meditate on God's word, pray over God's word, think about God's word, passages like Isaiah 6, but not just Isaiah 6, the totality of Scripture, the Spirit of God will answer that prayer and reveal to us the glory of his greatness and grace to us. That's why the gathered church is so important. Was your heart not stirred earlier singing those songs together? Hearing hundreds of or Christians singing with you truth about who God is, that's a means of grace, putting before us the greatness and grace of God. That's why we need to be under the preached word regularly. We need to be in fellowship with God's people, and our fellowship should center on the greatness of God and his grace to us, not just on the regular things of the world. Good books can be a means of grace in this area. The point is, God is a great God, and he is a gracious God. We know that as his people, but let's kind of put ourselves under the waterfall where his grace and greatness are particularly revealed and given to us. As we put ourselves in those places, we don't earn his grace, but we stand where his grace is particularly given, those means of grace. Friends, as, we, as you walk this path, be encouraged by hope. It's going to culminate in the fullest experience of God's greatness and culmination of the gospel imaginable. Revelation 21 is clear. We will see his face. We will be his sons and daughters forever. His presence will dwell with his people. That is our future. The culminating experience of greatness and grace live and in person. So walk this journey together in view of God's greatness and grace. And may God use you as a community to shine forth the beauty of that greatness to others so that many in the Warwick area and in Rhode Island will come and experience it with you.
Father, thank you so much for this revelation of you in your word. We confess our own inability to stand in your presence as the holy God of the universe, and yet we rejoice and celebrate and are in awe of the grace you have provided, the provision you have made so that we can indeed stand in your presence because of Jesus. Lord, by your spirit, would you empower each one here this morning to live their lives in view of your greatness and your grace. May it be a daily reality that empowers us through all the hard seasons of our lives, through all the temptations to sin. And may you receive the glory because it's all because of and for you in Jesus' name. Amen.